Good morning again. Thank you for the hearty good morning back. Uh, If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And today we're in week 10 of the gospel is for everyone. It's a study in the book of Romans. Today we'll be at the end of Romans chapter 6, and we have a long-standing tradition to stand to our feet to honor the reading of God's word. We're Romans chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can scroll down to verse 17. Cheesy digital joke. Chapter 6, verses 17 through 23. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you, were once, pre- you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word that's beyond our thoughts and our willful desires, whether they're good or less good. Lord, we need a a blessing. We need things that we don't quite fully understand. And we trust you for that. Something deeper than our best efforts and thoughts as we go to your word. Lord, we believe that you began life. That's the whole point of life is that you originated everything that is. And everything that is will will bring glory to you in the end. So teach us what these truths mean about today for us. Amen. If you're taking notes, I've entitled this sermon obedient from the heart. I'm just ripping these words right out of verse 17 here. Obedient from the heart. Now for Christians, or even most often pre-Christians, non-Christians, it's extremely common to live obedient to the flesh, not obedient from the heart. And, And the flesh is not just the body, but also the soul. The soul Another part of our human being, the soul is the mind and the will and the emotions. 
So here's how we can live obedient to the flesh, even when we're not thinking of it. We can, for example, combat physical urges only with the intellect, not based in faith. And what that can be is really just flesh fighting flesh with no faith. But we can do better than that. We have more power at our disposal. We are three-part beings, according to the Bible. We are not just body and soul, but also spirit. Spirit. Our spirit, in the Bible, it's also referred to pretty much synonymously as our heart. So today we explore what a life looks like, looks like that's driven by a renewed spirit and a renewed heart. A life that grows in sanctification unto eternal life. A life that's truly capacitated to be obedient from the heart. Now, as I preach through our text, pretty much from the start to the end, I'm going to be answering three questions as I go. And those are these. Where does Christian obedience come from? How do we today obey from the heart? And where does Christian obedience or obedience from the heart lead to? So we've got this like yesterday, today, tomorrow vibe going on here. Where does this, the origin of our obedience, that's, that's the yesterday question. Then today, how are we supposed to grow in that? How do we obey from the heart? And then tomorrow, where does that lead to? So let's start with the, the yesterday question. Where does or where did Christian obedience come from? Now, if you're good with context clues, and I'm asking where does Christian obedience come from, but I also just stated the title of my message is Obedience from the Heart. You might say, like, you know, just fire back, you know, straight from the heart, but you'd be wrong. And uh, if you, also, if you didn't get my 1980s reference, of course, I'm kind of wrong there too, but 19, uh, that's Brian Adams, I think, again. Um, shoot. I thought you guys were going to sing with me there. Butchering 1980s honky music is almost as bad as the Stevie Wonder last week. But now I'm going to get you guys singing with me during this. Obedience from the heart doesn't come from the heart. And that might seem to not click. But we have to ask the question, where do we acquire hearts that can obey? And this is really important. In fact, I want to encourage you to think slowly like I think. And to read slowly with me the first few words of our passage. Go with me to verse 17. We're asking the question, where does this obedience that God is commanding of me, where does it come from? This is so important. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Have become. Where does Christian obedience come from? 14 words before the word heart is the word God. And that's really important to navigate. Paul says, thanks be to God that you have become this new sort of creature that we can just call obedient from the heart creature. Or short form for that, Christian. 
Someone who's received an entirely new heart right from the throne of God. Thanks be to God that you have become this sort of strange and wonderful creature that is obedient from the heart. Now, Christians, there's nothing wrong with being commended for our part in the choice to obey and to participate in the fight of redeemed relationship with God that we're called to do now. But in our self-accommodations, let's not, be, let's not confuse the root of our obedience. Let's be careful to give ultimate thanks where thanks is ultimately due, lest we rob God of his glory, unless we, play, unless we place a false burden on ourselves to complete that which we didn't start and we were never able to start. Or as Paul says elsewhere, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If he is the author, then he is the perfecter. And obedient hearts, first and foremost, are a gift from God. Turn to your neighbor and say, your heart is a gift. And tur- turn back to the other neighbor and say, bless your heart. Say it with a Texas accent. Bless your heart. See, listen, in the, in the miracle of new life, thanks for participating. Remember, you're not an audience. You're a congregation, so we can talk a little bit in church. In the miracle of new life, he removes our disobedient and rebellious hearts in the gospel that, that aren't capable of obeying or loving God. And he spiritually transplants new hearts that can obey from the heart. He fulfills his promise from Ezekiel when he said, I will remove your hearts of stone and give you new and living and rightly functioning hearts. That's what he does in the gospel. It's a spiritual heart transplant. Now now imagine if the heart transplant that we're more familiar with, the physical ones, imagine if a fatal, near-fatal cardiac patient went into surgery and had a successful heart transplant surgery and then came out of surgery, and his first words were, I made it. They doubted me. Haters are hating. But based, thanks be to my skill and endurance, I stand before you today a new man. We'd say, dude, that's absurd. You were anesthetized. The surgeon did all the work. And as absurd as that silly example sounds, let me tell you, what God does in the gospel, in our spiritual heart transplants, is way more active than what a surgeon does when he uses some other imperfect heart to transplant. God does it all. He gives us a new heart that's perfected in him. That's what he does. That's where Christian obedience comes from. Thanks be to God. Now, we're going to get into our part in the second question. How do we take this heart that he's given us and rightly obey? But listen, if we don't settle on this question, this part of the origin of our obedience, then we're going to be unsettled to play our part anyway. Because a proper view of origin leads to a proper view of destiny and a proper perspective for overcoming the present battles that are before us. 
Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you demands that you see it through to completion, right? No, you gotta be, got to be quicker with me. No, he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. The Father began the good work of salvation by sending his Son to save us from our sin. And he will complete what he started. Jesus will come back. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, the creed says. And church, if you didn't start it yesterday, then the burden's not on you to finish it tomorrow. Instead, the responsibility is on you today. And that word, that English kind of contraction of sorts, is a helpful one in this regard. Responsibility. We have the ability now, because of his grace, to respond to his gospel with obedience. We have the responsibility to obey him because he's enabled that responsibility by giving us new hearts. And we'll get back to how that plays out in question two, but verse 17 goes on, and he's still underlining what God does for us. Verse 17 goes on, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, this is important to slow down and understand just what grammar is and is not doing here. This is passive voice. It's not second person past tense. He is not saying you were faithful to the teaching that you committed to. It's not saying that. Apparently, Paul didn't have the same high school grammar teacher as I did because he's purposefully using passive voice. He's saying the teaching to which you were committed. Before we committed to the teaching of the gospel, we were committed to it by God. Even this word committed is actually, the the Greek word translated here, this is the only time in the New Testament it's translated committed, which is all sorts of confusing with how we use the word committed in the last hundred years or so. Every other time it's, it's rendered more like this, handed over to. So read verse 17 again. You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were handed over. That's how it reads. So where does Christian obedience come from? It comes from the Father who handed us over to new life. And how did he do that? He handed over his only begotten son so that he would die on a Roman cross as a just penalty for the sins that he never committed, but by substitution, he died for the sins that we committed. That's how he handed us over to the gospel. He died for our sin and rose again from the dead. And he came back from the dead with his nail-pierced hands, and he started touching spiritually dead people and handing us over to a new life that is irreplaceable and undefeatable. Verse 18 goes on with more passive voice. You, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, God in in the gospel didn't just give us a new start. He gave us a brand new life. He didn't just give us a fresh chance to be righteous. He literally plugged us into his righteousness and not our own. 
his incorruptible holiness and righteousness. Now, it says here we're enslaved to righteousness, compelled to it, led by it, by this eternal holiness. This word enslaved that he keeps using in this whole chapter, it's the, it's the Greek word doulos, which really means bond service. But in its most literal sense, it means to serve another to the detriment of one's own interest. It's the root of the word. Just, it's basically just to serve another to the detriment of one's own interest. So when we're handed over to faith by the grace and power of a loving God, and we love Jesus back, that's the evidence of our faith that we have affection for our Savior. He plugs us into this grace that we're bound to a holiness and a joy that we cannot retract from. To the detriment of our sin and our despair unto which we were once slaves. It's a big gospel. In fact, Paul keeps using in, in chapter 6 this word that we're enslaved to the gospel, but it's even more intense in Ephesians 2. He says we were dead in our sins. We were, that Paul says we were enslaved to sin. He said we were dead in our sin. In, in Ephesians 2 he says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He does a lot for dead people. Hundreds of years before, King David asked, right after he sinned against God, he said, Lord, renew a right spirit within me. So fast forward to Jesus and what he does by dying for our sin and raising from the dead. He literally restores a right spirit and new spirit in us. That's exactly what he does for dead sinners. He, he takes his right spirit and puts it in us so that we can be made right and able to do righteousness. He gives us new hearts that can obey him. The origin of Christian obedience is not your affection for God. It's his affection for you when you were dead in your sin And now when you're alive and still fighting the old sin and fighting the shame that would try to lie to you about who you now are and condemn yourself, he loved you back before you were even fighting sin, when you were bound by it. This is important and crucial, why I've purposefully decided to be slow on point one. Because if we're in a hurry to move on to question number two, we will end up condemning ourselves for not living up to the performance standard that God alone can perform for us. For not doing what only Jesus could do. No, God wants us to rest in what he's performed for us and respond with the capacity to obey increasingly as he enlarges us. And this is important for my life, my experience. I was led to Jesus by a campus ministry in 1997. Uh, I was a normal, self-righteous, perverse, religious kid that came to know Jesus and 
the affections and desires for Jesus was evidence that I have a new heart. I'm not just trying better. And yet, my understanding and grasp of faith in the Bible was not aligning with my new heart. I had some theological problems that played out in some really bad anxiety with how I saw my performance for God. And here's what I did from, for about the first 10 years of my faith. I tried to go back to the first things that I felt. Because I felt that, okay, I had this genuine, sincere, passionate love for Jesus in those first days. And I need to go back to figure out how I was feeling in that days. And, and what Bible verses did I read? And what time did I wake up in the morning? And all these activities and this striving, they were centered around who? Around me. I was misinterpreting Revelation 2. I think the angel is speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, return to your former love and do the things in the first. And I thought that only meant return to the way that I first loved God. And the things that I was doing and the emotions that I was feeling. And I was really struggling with origins of my salvation. Because it's not talking about me and how I first loved God, but returning to the person who first loved me when I was dead. And his love brought me to life. When we can understand that Jesus is the one who first loved us, and we can know that that same Jesus is here with us right now. No matter what we're going through, no matter what we're feeling, if we're in like a, like a really high sincerity level of Christianity or a low one, it's insignificant. The question is, is can I come out of agreement with all of my self-condemnation and be present with him? That's what returning to Jesus looks like because he's right here. He's not back there at the point of my conversion. He's not in the past Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's here, and he's present with me, and he's really just saying, returning to me means be present with me like I'm present with you. Christian obedience came from him, and returning to him is being available to him right now and fighting every other competing impulse. So how do we do that? Number two, how do we obey from the heart? Verse 19 goes on. Check out the second part of verse 19. And again, let's read slowly because this has some, some amazing things diagnosing the way that we go about life. This is really helpful and raw. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now notice how Paul is careful to articulate that sin is like this cycle. He says lawlessness and then repeats lawlessness again. KJV, King James says, iniquity unto more iniquity. Sin is a dead-end cycle. But when he mentions the blessed alternative in this verse, He doesn't use the same two words. He says, righteousness leading to, what's that word? Sanctification. And we could contextually add righteousness leading to sanctification, leading to glorification, leading to eternal life. See, it's not a cycle, but it's a growing progression. Think of it like this way. Sin is like a drain. It spins around for just a bit, just this 
brief moment on earth. It spins us in circles until we're swept away by it. That's what it's like when we're here, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Sin and the other word for sin used here, iniquity, it's the, it's the drain of sin, the cycle of sin, promises so much more than it can deliver on. It says, come, be free from the law. God told you, you know, with all his laws and rules that he's protecting you, but he's not protecting you. He's just trying to restrict you. He's trying to limit your fun. So come and indulge and be truly free. That's what sin says. But in choosing to be free from the law, we become enslaved to lawlessness, swirling around in the, dw- the drain of our own discontent. Sin promises to satisfy, but it only depletes us. It's like an itch that promises relief if you just scratch it. But we know how that goes. It only makes it worse, right? Every sin that I've ever been tempted by or given into works just like this. Every addiction works like this, whether sex or drugs or social media addictions or uh, digital ad- or phone addictions or my, my, my constant combat with donuts. Sin calls out and says, just give in and you will be satisfied. You need this. It's okay just this time. Nobody's perfect. It's just this once. And so you give in, but it's never, never just this once. And there's actually a neurological pattern wherein you tend to feel more inclined to think that you need to repeat the impulse, but at the same time, less satisfied with it when you do give into it. The highs aren't as high anymore. The donuts just don't quite taste as good anymore. The video games just aren't quite as fun as much as they're mechanical and reduce you to like robot existence. Reduced in your ability to feel. It's an increasingly common con- condition today, actually, that scientists are calling, this old word really, anhedonia. The inability to feel, anhedonia. You know, the word hedonism, the, the making an ism out of the feeling. Anhedonia is the inability to feel pleasure. Or Paul would call it iniquity unto more iniquity, like a, swirling drain, slowly we become numbed to any sensation, whether spiritual or whatever. And most of us have become so numb from each little dopamine release, every little text and ring and click and swipe and constant noise of podcasts or Spotify or whatever else it is, so numb in our capacity to be present, to take in beauty, to to behold wildflowers and feel fresh breezes and smell fresh bread, pinch baby cheeks, just simple old school pleasures that God created us for. We're being depleted. Verse 21, he asks this question, what were you getting from those things from which you are now ashamed? The fruit of sin is slavery and depletion and desensitizing. And sin promises a liberation, but only deceives us. We become reduced in our capacity to feel, 
dulled by our ability to have real senses. And remember, Paul is saying here, you were once enslaved to this sort of impurity. It's the same word for impurity, which also means lustfulness or uncleanness is what KJV says. He uses this word when he's talking about wrath. In essence, he's saying, you were once under wrath. In fact, he uses the same word in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their flesh to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. But listen, he's saying here in Romans 6, that's who you once were. You were once enslaved to this death cycle. But God has plucked you up out of this drain and handed you over to new life and given you a new heart. So now you are servants and slaves of righteousness and you have the ability, the responsibility to fight. And the reality of your new life and your new heart must take dominion over all the things in your flesh, over every impulse in your body and in your soul to be in right alignment, right alignment with righteousness. Believer, if you believe in Jesus, you didn't just make a decision. If you have affections for Jesus, there's a miracle that happened, and you no longer have to be drained out by sin. You now have the authority in Christ to fight and effectually drain sin out of your life, little by little. And it's important. It is a fight for your life, and your heart, and your future... And your joy really is at stake in your fight against sin, which is not your friend. Sin reduces. But the good news is that the gospel enlarges. With the gospel, we're given a new righteousness that grows us and leads to sanctification. And think about how this progression plays out in a way that, that, that's not cyclical. It liberates us and grows us. The more I learn about Jesus, the more fascinated I become to learn more about Jesus. I just want to know more. The more he satisfies my hunger, the hungrier I get for Jesus. The more I read the Bible, the more I just want to read the Bible. I'm fascinated by it. The more I build other believers up the more joy I have in bringing exhortation and encouragement and prophecy and silencing the devil and shutting up demons. The more I preach the gospel to what I call future believers, even if it's strangers in awkward public settings, the more I grow in this sanctified addiction of evangelism and out of the enslaving addiction of sin. It's not like a drain, but like a higher and higher summit walking with God. Because of his power, the more we feel it, the more sensitized we are to feel it more. And the more we hear his voice and we listen and obey, the louder his voice and his whisper becomes in our ear. The temptations and the fears, let me promise you something, they don't go away but they become comparatively smaller because I become larger in him. Verse 20, you who were once slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting out of those things, of the things of which you're now ashamed? When it says you were free in regards to righteousness, 
It actually means more like we, we're disconnected from righteousness. We, we weren't, didn't have the capacity when we were bound by sin to conform to the desire of God. And if you could sum up faith with a really helpful synonym in regards to loving Jesus, it, it's desire. Faith has everything to do with what we truly desire and how we stir up righteous desires and less to do with just simply things that we think. Everyone conforms to one desire or another. And when I am obeying God, I am thereby disobeying the desires of sin and vice versa. You will either fight to conform your desires to God's desires or you will give in to the desires of your flesh. There is no neutrality. Obeying from the heart is a big question about desire. Will you stir up the desires of God to the detriment of old desires? Will you conquer the old desires with new ones? Now, how is this done? Let me just tell you something that rhymes that hopefully is helpful to you. The desires you're feeding is what will do the leading. So how, how do we obey from the heart? Find out the things that stir your desires of your renewed spirit. If you need to find out, read the Bible. It is helpful. Read the Bible. Find out the things that stir your desires for God and feed. Feed them. Feed those desires. And as you're painfully reminded of the alternative, the things that grieve the heart of God, the things that grieve God's heart, starve those things. And this is what's so helpful. This is not just an individualistic imperative where we hear some things and now we ought to go be alone to work it out. God doesn't leave us to that. He says, feed the desires of God starve the desires of sin, but then he gives us one another to do that. He gives us the church. He gives us the sacrament to remind us. He gives us the ability to confess our sin to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed, James 5.16. I have a men's group that meets at 5.16 a.m. on Wednesday mornings because of that verse. We have an imperative and an ability to feed the Spirit of God in us and to starve the spirit of sin that's being distanced from us by faith. God doesn't want us to just kind of sit around and kind of hope that maybe sin doesn't encroach on our territory. He wants us to press out together. He wants us to aggressively make disciples. He wants us to trample the gates of hell. He wants us to lay a ruthless and brutal siege against Satan and his desires. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10.4. Amen? 10.4? I think that's the way you say it. Dang it. Yeah, that is. Shoot. I mean, I knew that. Impurity and death are being drained away as we're advancing and growing in God. 
and we're listening to his voice and his desires. So answer to question number one, where does a new heart and a heart of obedience come from? It comes from God giving us a new heart. And answer two, so what do we do with that? How do we grow in that? How are we obedient from the heart? Well, we feed the desires of our new heart and we starve the old desires. Now, where does Christian obedience, or obedience from the heart, where does it lead to? Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. So if we have this confidence that we did not plant this seed, we were never the gardener, we're not the gardener in the future, we are the field of God and we are growing in him, we are planted by him, and he is going to bear the fruit that he's planted. So what do I do now? Well, I, I rest in that, and I navigate today by that end game. And I aggressively disallow any current struggles, any suffering, to add a despair to my soul that's inappropriate. I only allow the sort of personal disposition that's appropriate in the context of my future victory. Does it mean I don't suffer? Does it mean that I don't battle anxiety? No, it means that I have such a sure future that's more real than my current situation, whether it's good or bad, that I can be confident to spread and, and reign with Christ today. Last verse in our chapter is somewhat of a summary of of our passage. It's a summary of chapter 6. It's somewhat of a summary of the whole gospel. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. It's probably 10 sermons could be preached from this verse, but I'll just, well, I won't do any new sermons right now. But listen, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In summary, the, the sin and impurity that we were enslaved to, God could have just given us over to that forever. And, and a just God allowing us to earn the wages that we've earned, is it sending people to hell? Well, technically, but it's also just allowing us the wages of our own sin but the free gift of God is eternal life. And listen, if we know it's free, then we will be free to receive it and to give it away over and over and over again. Does, in my giving it away, does someone think I'm a fool? Well, okay. I have this assurance of eternal life. I remember what it was like to kind of think these things, but not to have received the free gift of eternal life. Where I would think, okay, Jesus is kind of the Lord, I guess. But I remember when I received a new heart, and I could rightly say that he's my Lord, Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So today, I don't know how many minutes I have left in my life, but I'm not giving any minutes to false anxieties or insecurities. To the best of my fight, I will not give any energy to trivialities, to things that just don't matter as much as this truth. And if I am falling short in that, 
I have the Holy Spirit to help build me up. I have the Holy Spirit in you to help build me up. We have this conquering, powerful gift of God. Church is a lot more than I thought it was years ago. Right now, I want to take up an offering of sorts. I want to give you an opportunity to make an offering of your talents and and gifts to God that maybe thus far you've kept to yourself, whether out of fear or busyness or whatever. In August, we will be rebooting our equip ministry with what we are calling Equip 101. Equip 101. Now, all year long, our elders and a, and a small group of leaders have been working to simplify a dynamic process whereby members in our church can disconnect from fears that have strang- had a stranglehold on our growth and really uh, step into launching into the specific ministry that God has for us within this church and within the city. And we're excited about it. We've actually practiced it and been praying through it. And on August 18th, anyone who's been through our established process, which is Establish 101, uh, the Victory Weekend, and completion of the Purple Book, is eligible to come and be equipped at Equip 101. It's right after our service. It's a few hours. All the information's on our website, thespringstx.org. Go to events. Sign up. Even if, if you got, okay, you got almost seven weeks now to finish your purple book, plan on it. If finishing your purple book means that you have to do that to the detriment of something else, plan on it. God wants to use you. God wants to use you to do things that we couldn't do without God using you. That's why he's placed you here. If you haven't even started the the established process, we'll have an ability by the end of this year to get started and get to the next Equip 101. But remember that Jesus was willing to give an offering of himself so that we could grow, and so that we could conquer. He battled his own fleshly desires when he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross to die for our impurity so that we could live a sort of life that expands and conquers and grows. We could launch out from his righteousness. Would you pray with me?